Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome everybody to a new episode of Science Stories. I'm here today with Dr. Smart. Dr. Smart, how are you doing? I'm doing good, thank you. Dr. Smart, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's great to be here, by the way. Um, so I'm, my full name is Paul Smart. I am a, what I like to call a, a molecular ecologist who is currently pursuing his postdoctoral studies at Texas State University in the Department of Biology. Where did you do your PhD studies? I, my PhD was done at the University of Texas at Arlington, which is in the DFW area. Um, so still in Texas. But and what would you say is your, your major? Uh, I would say it's evolution, studies of evolutionary biology. So evolutionary biology is a, is a really broad right. uh, subject. Do you mind narrowing it, narrowing it down a little bit more, please? Sure. So. Uh, I study evolutionary processes in the context of ecologies. So basically, wha what are the evolutionary and ecological forces that are you know, generating and maintaining biodiversity? So that's where my focus is, um, specifically vertebrate biodiversity. Before we continue, can we get this out of the way? Are there any good jokes you've heard about your name? Dr. Smart, like, uh, you know what I mean? I, Pants. <laughs> You've heard them all, I guess, right? I, I've heard all of them, and let me tell you, they're all bad. They're all bad. None so of them are good jokes. I'm not going to try. I'm not I, even going to do I, I, one. You, you okay. can. <laughs> you, you, might, you might do better than others, so okay. give it a shot. <laughs> okay. So I think the, the best way to organize this is let's follow your timeline, mm -hmm. right? And you can share your stories while you did different kinds of research, right? Sure. So if I understand correctly, you did your master's in India. That is correct, yes. What, what were you studying in uh, India? So I, uh, my master's was in ecology. Uh, specifically, I studied the behavioral ecology of cane turtles. Now, cane turtles are turtles that are endemic to this forests of India in the south, uh, mostly. And they're super neat, uh, neat-looking turtles that, you know, put on... During the mating season, the males will flush red. So their faces will be like, you know, the as if they have makeup on and they're endemic and they're super cool. I studied their behavior because not a lot is known about what they do during the day in, in, their, you know, in their natural habitat. So uh, I basically sat there with a notebook and watched paint dry, basically, as they would say. Right? Was this a wild population that you studied? Or yes, or was it, uh, it was uh, four individuals that I studied in the wild. Correct. Ah, so you, for you followed specifically four individuals? Correct, two males and two females. Wow, and and I also I also know that you had some accidents or some anecdotes while working in the field. Yeah, that's that's the best part of working in the field is is the stories. Some of them might not 
<laughs> might not be funny when that happened, but in hindsight, they're kind of, uh, you know, they're funny. So I guess during my master's, uh, I spent about six months in, in this ecological area known as the Western Ghats Biodiversity Hotspot in India. It's uh, one of the hottest hotspots of biodiversity in the world. So I was really thrilled that I could spend, you know, that long there, but it, it did get it did get hairy on more than a couple of occasions because uh, we're talking about a forest, right, where there's a megafauna, ma- uh, mammals like tigers, elephants. Um, so I've had more than one encounter with a group of elephants. So I, I w- one day I walked into a herd of elephants and they were so quiet that I didn't notice that I'd walked into the herd until I was like smack in the middle of it. And let me tell you one thing, when people think about, you know, dangerous animals in a forest in India or in Asia, right? Tiger would be the first one, right? Right, that's what comes to mind. Tigers and the more traditionally ferocious looking things. But the, the, the animal that kills the most people in India, especially in the Western Ghats, elephants. Wow. You do not want to mess with elephants in the wild. So wait, so you were walking in the forest? Mm-hmm. And you suddenly find yourself surrounded by elephants? <laughs> Pretty much. So I, I had a local field guide who who was supposed to be there for things like that, right? So <laughs> so that I could do research while he's taking care of the surroundings, making sure I'm not doing anything stupid. On that day, I think he was talking on the phone with his wife or with his oh my God. son. And um, he kind of fell behind and I was in, my, you know, I was in my own thoughts and I, I kept walking. Uh, and all of a sudden, I hear a, rust- a rustling on the side, right? So there's this narrow path, and there's forest on both sides. I hear rustling. I look to the right. There's this giant elephant just, you know, eating some leaves or foraging. Uh, it hadn't yet seen me. So I slowly turn around, and I see on the left, there's two more elephants, right? And, uh, and then a couple of them emerge from the path in front of me. That's when it hit me that I had walked into a, and it's amazing how quiet, you know, such big animals can be. That's, that was the amazing thing. So I turned around to, uh, to my field guide and like gestured, what do I do? And he was like, keep walking. But after the, the elephants that came from front, after they turned up, I was like, I cannot keep going. So I turned around to ask him again, what to do? And he's nowhere to be found. And I see him in the distance running away. Oh my <laughs> he's running he for his life. Completely so abandoned you. Yeah, completely abandoned. And, and I followed suit, obviously, after that. I'm y- not ashamed. You took off to running? I took off running I like I have never run before. They didn't follow you or anything, nothing? No, I think uh, maybe I didn't appear to be very, <laughs> very dangerous. You were not a threat at all. You were not a threat for them. They saw this guy running away. Yeah, okay, exactly. I didn't go. look intimidating <laughs> in any way, you know. It's funny you say that because I have a friend that is originally from Zimbabwe mm-hmm. and he says that when he's in the bush, as he says, mm-hmm. right. the, the, s- the most silent animals are elephants. Oh yeah, I believe that. It's, it's amazing how, s- how big they are and how silent, silent they are for mm-hmm. the size. Yeah. yeah, and they can smell you from miles away too. So, And then you moved on for your PhD studies to do some field work in Indonesia, right? That is correct. So after, right after I started my PhD program at UTA, uh, my PhD advisor uh, got a big National Science Foundation grant to inventory the uh, her- herps, as we call them, which are reptiles and amphibians. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're collectively known as herpetofauna. To study the herpetofauna of um, Java and Sumatra, which are two of uh, 
the biggest islands of Indonesia. So I was able to basically spend almost uh, a year in total uh, doing field work there. So this would be in marked in the discipline called phylogeography. Could would that be correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, the phylogeography was definitely part of what I did. Uh, it, it's it's a series of interconnected sciences which includes taxonomy, um, systematics, phylogeography, phylogenetics. Uh, once you have the, the the genetic data that we collected from these frogs and snakes and other reptiles and amphibians, you can actually study any of those disciplines. Uh, and they're usually interconnected, so you end up doing multiple. So I usually find that there are two types of scientists, the ones that love a model organism or an animal or an organism in general, and the ones that chase more questions. Mm -hmm. You studying herbs, was it the first case or the second one? Do you, do you, li do you love snakes and reptiles? I do. So and I need to be careful about how I'm, I'm applying for jobs, so I don't want to <laughs> ruin my chances by saying that, you know, I'm only interested in one organism because that's kind of not appealing. Of course. Of uh, course. You need to have broad questions. Yeah. Right? Uh, but I do have a soft spot for uh, reptiles and amphibians uh, because I've been, I've been chasing them ever since I was a kid. And I also know that there's a lot of stories about your fieldwork in Indonesia. Oh, yes. So what was the story about, uh, there's a volcano involved? Oh, there's several volcanoes. So that, uh, Indonesia is, is on what's known as the Pacific Ring of Fire. It's this chain of volcanoes where two plates are colliding and Java and Sumatra are basically are scattered with volcanoes and some of them are active. So, uh, well, apart from the iconic, you know, Krakatoa, which I'm sure most people have heard of, uh, it's a, it's an island volcano. Uh, there's also other volcanoes that are active right now as we speak. But uh, we were in North Sumatra, and it was it was at night. So we go out to collect uh, amphibians and reptiles at night, typically because it's easier to cap catch them then. So while we were out, you know, looking for these these guys, uh, I I start. So I was wearing a poncho because it was also raining uh, mm -hmm. on and off. So I start to feel, you know, what s feels like raindrops on my poncho. So I don't really think much about it. And then when I l look up, I see my friend and I see her poncho is just covered with ash. Oh my! So it was not rain that was falling, it was ash fall. And then I had also heard what I thought was thunder, but it was actually a nearby volcano called Sinabung that had just started erupting. And it was f fascinating, right? Like I've never... Not only was I, so we did end up collecting things while it, there was ashfall because the reptiles were, you know, still chilling uh, in uh, on the trees and wherever they sit, right? It's night, so they're sleeping. One thing that really struck out to me was there is this group of frogs that are typically arboreal, mm -hmm. right? So you, when you want to find them, you look up or you look at eye level on bushes and trees. And I could hear them calling on that night when the ashfall, but I couldn't see them anywhere. Uh, and then we noticed that they're all, and these are arboreal frogs, they're all gone underwater in a little tank that was, there's a tank of water. So th uh, they knew what was coming. Right, so that clearly the ash fall was, yeah. you know, um, harming them in some way or they're not happy with it. So these guys would, frogs that are not typically aquatic, they would hold their breath, go down to the bottom of the tank, come out to call, and then go back. Wow. That, that was pretty fascinating. Did the volcano erupt? 
Uh, yes, indeed, it did. Uh, and like I think two weeks after we left the area, uh, it actually erupted and killed a bunch of people, wow. um, which is sad. Uh, yeah. And but uh, it th- like I said, it's many active volcanoes in Indonesia, so that that's pretty normal. And is it true that you were also stalked by a mountain lion? Uh, Sumatran tiger. Sumatran tiger? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, so this was when we were lost. Um, and again, it's it's a long story, but c- uh, putting cutting it short, basically, we went out to y- sample. You don't have to cut it short. I don't right? have to cut no, it short. No, no, okay. no. Yeah, well. please. So we typically how th- we do field work is we set out to climb these volcanoes or these mountains with forests, right? Uh, because that's where you find all the cool stuff that's not been found before. But because uh, it's harder to catch herbs in 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 the morning, we do this in the evening. So the strategy is you walk up the mountain starting late evening, and then you will you you walk down the mountain at night. And as you do so, you you collect whatever you see on the way. On that night, we so can I ask you a, a parenthesis. Sure, sure. What is the objective of this collection? What what are you collecting this this species yeah, for? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, so we basically wanted to be able to categorize the diversity of reptiles and amphibians in Indonesia, because there's a lot of them that are not even you know there's a lot of new species that are just waiting in these forests that have not been discovered before. So it it. We also have a museum at the University of Texas at Arlington, uh, Natural History Museum, which now houses these animals, you know, these samples that can be used for future studies on biodiversity. And when you, how do you collect them? Uh, just grab them. Just see them and grab them? Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Yes. And and when you, do you, do you extract blood or DNA? Or we what do extract DNA, yes. Okay. Uh, so we extract tissue mm-hmm. from um, specific areas of the animals, depending on what animal it is. And then we, we use that to d- extract DNA when we get into the lab. And so this, this particular day you were... You went up the mountain, so and then y- you were going down th- right. in the so night. Right. So we we had already gone up. Uh, we had we have to have a local guide always where we would go. So we had someone from the forest department off off that you know what it's like a county here of that area. And but he was uh, very young, probably sixteen at the most, and he was clearly new to this. We handed him the GPS, and we just followed him. Right. So the idea was to go up and then just come down the same way at night. We didn't make it up, but on the way down, we ended up on the other side of the mountain. Oh. So there's this side yeah. where our team was going to come pick us up at midnight on one side. Uh, the other side basically en- went into the sea. So you crossed the edge somehow? Yes, correct. We, we Without noticing, and you start going down. Yes. Yeah. And we were so engrossed in c- c- catching s- the animals that we didn't pay attention where we were going we were just following the guide mm-hmm. and then I, uh, I noticed that the guide was holding the GPS upside down <laughs> and that's when that's a like, bad sign <laughs> oh okay and then when we asked him he said I don't know how to use this I just took it because you gave it to me uh, and then yeah we, we got lost uh, we decided to follow the river downstream and maybe at this point we still didn't know we were on the wrong side of the mountain when you, when you realized you were lost was it still dark? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. it, this was around one o'clock in the morning. So oh. we were supposed to be at the foot of the mountain back down by then. And we weren't. And we, we were like, what is going on? That's when we found out that our guide was uh, didn't really have the experience we thought he had. Uh, so we started going down this river, like walking 
It was pretty shallow. And then it starts to rain, rain like cats and dog, and the river quickly starts to rise. And we're basically in this uh, little valley, this river uh, that the river has carved, and there's just steep cliffs on both sides, steep hills, with uh, what's known as rattan. Rattan is a thorny plant that, uh, that you find in Asia. So you had nowhere to go. No, so we but because the water was rising, we just had to oh, you had climb to. through those returns, and I, that was hell. Right? Yeah, it was not fun. We kept falling, but we made it out. And then we decided because it was still storming, we decided to just spend the night and start looking for a way out in the morning. So we basically found a little rock, not a little rock. There's a big rock that was kind of. Uh, we went and sat down under the overhang of the rock uh, and that's where we spend the night and that's where the tiger comes in because while we were sleeping or trying to sleep at night on a cold rock while it's storming <laughs> and raining we could hear all sorts of animals around us right and uh, the forest comes alive at night too there's a whole group of animals that are really active at night uh, and that includes you know so we heard elephants stomping around and around four o'clock in the morning while we're just starting to get some sleep we the whole valley where we were uh, reverberates with the sound of, you know, it's, there's nothing like it. It's a tiger roaring. So um, I don't know, maybe it smelled us. I don't know why it was roaring, but it was roaring and we could hear it coming, like move around, right? Like it, the sound would come from one side and then it would roar from like the other circling side. circling around the group? Probably trying to figure out what these... How many people were there in the group? Uh, I want to say there was about five of us ah, okay. and six, including the guy. So I don't know how tigers behave, but typically animals wouldn't wouldn't attack a big no, they, a group. Like if you're two or more, you're pretty safe, right? Uh, yeah, m most animals are really reluctant to, unless you get into their face or into their territory in a way that's. But still, super super. Yeah, scary, and if yeah. they if it was a f uh, mama tiger, right, with yeah. cubs, then uh, they can be more aggressive. But I guess this was just a. Maybe it was not even roaring at us. I don't know. Who knows? It was too dark and no one wanted to find out. But it took us 24 hours. So you were lost find for 24 hours? Yes. And we had one. We, had, we were out of water. So we were drinking water from the stream, uh, which is okay. Uh, but we didn't have enough food. So because we hadn't, we had come enough. Just snacks just for snacks a night. Because yeah. at night we're going to head back to camp. So we survived on like three crackers each for 24 hours. Uh, <laughs> Do you know if, if like alarm was raised? Back oh in yeah, the camp? no, they had a search party sent out the forest oh. department to look for us and they couldn't find us. And they even went to the local, you know, local sh shaman or, you know, the uh, village magician or uh, I don't know what the word is. And he apparently told them, oh, don't worry, they will be found within the next 12 hours. So my professor decided to just go back and <laughs> wait it out and hope that we come back. Yeah, professor just trusted the shaman? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a story. I d this is amazing. Yeah. And then, so eventually you guys walked out? Or we did you find a way or were you found? No, we found a way out. We, wow. we used the GPS the right way this time. And uh, it took us, uh, so it took us another 12 hours before we figured out where we were. And we we're just hiking through, through rattans, through elephant dung sometimes, oh. through all sorts of. So again, like I said, while it was happening, it was not fun at all. But yeah. looking back at it, it's a pretty cool story to be able to tell people. What an amazing story. Uh, in hindsight, yes. <laughs> 
So typically we go to the break and we come back from the break with music that the guest picks. Sure. But today is going to be even better because our guest, Dr. Smart, he's a musician. Amateur musician. Amateur musician. That's what he calls himself. I, I say he's a proper musician. So we're going to go to the break and come back with some of his own tracks, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Which one would you like me to play? Uh, you can pay, play the one called Krishna. Krishna? Yes. All right. We'll be back with more science stories shortly. Science stories. Science stories. Science stories. Science stories. Science stories. Science stories. I hate to cut it, but before the break, we were listening to Krishna by Dr. Smart. And now we're listening to... Cinnaboom. Cinnaboom, which you say it's inspired by, by the... the volcano that erupted while we're doing field work. Is this all keys? I'm sorry? Is this all keys? Um, this is uh, basically a keyboard connected to a um, software. So you're doing all the sounds? I'm playing all the sounds, yes, wow, so on the keyboard. That's That's really amazing, yeah. What's the creation creative process here? <laughs> like the, this volcano and, and, and then what like you just sat on the piano and start Pre sat on the keys and start doing? Pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it usually takes a strong an experience that, you know, uh, generates a strong emotion and that kind of sticks with me and then I try to just see how that can be expressed on the keyboard. Nice. All right, so after your PhD studies, you moved on 
to something completely different. Y yes. So you change, you got yourself into the forensics realm. I, I I did, and I'd like to say it's it's different, and at the same time, it's not different. That's why I was able to uh, transition into uh, forensic genetics uh, easier than I thought I was going to. Um, so forensic genetics is basically uh, population population genetics, um, which is what I also did for my PhD. You're using the same methods and approaches, but instead of, say, focusing on a snake or a frog, you, your, your focal taxa or your focal animal is homo sapiens, right? Humans. Uh, that's the only difference. So everything else still applies. So everything you learned for snakes, you, mm -hmm. you, you used for humans afterwards? Pretty much, yes. So when you worked, when, I, when we say you worked in forensics, you didn't work for law enforcement. Correct. No, I, so I, I, th the, my forensics postdoc was at the University of North Texas Health Science Center. Specifically, w there is a department called Center for Human Identification, uh, which, which does casework also, but also does R&D, research and development. And I was with the R&D. I think it would be beneficial if you tell the people about mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA. What are they and what are the differences between them? Because that's that's what you focus in, right? Uh, yeah, so my f my research focused on uh, using mitochondrial DNA in humans to better uh, identify individuals. What What is mitochondrial DNA? So uh, typically when you think of DNA, right, for uh, in our bodies, we actually have two different categories of DNAs. Uh, one is the DNA that's found in the nucleus of your cell, which is known as the nuclear DNA. Um, and this is inherited from the mom and the dad both. But then floating around the nucleus are these little organelles or little organs called mitochondria, right? Uh, you might have heard of them as being the powerhouse of the cell. They generate ATP and energy uh, that, you know, helps us with our daily lives, but they have their own DNA. Mitochondria, mitochondrial DNA is very different from nuclear DNA, and it's inherited only f maternally. So it's only passed down to the offspring uh, from, from the mom. And how does, come, how does that come to play in forensics? Mitochondrial DNA actually is used a lot in forensics, uh, mainly because it has there is more of it per cell than you would have nuclear DNA. So most of the samples that you, you would gather from a crime scene uh, are, are more likely than not, they're, they're degraded, right? Because they have been exposed to the elements, to the weather, to whatever. So in that case, nuclear DNA, because there isn't as many copies of it as the mitochondrial DNA in, a, in human cells, you, if you try to get nuclear DNA out of it, you're, you're more likely to find well, so let me put it this way: you're more you're m more likely to find m more mitochondrial DNA than nuclear DNA in these samples. So, since since mitochondrial DNA is more common than nuclear DNA, more abundant, yes. If you have a small sample, it's safer to go for mitochondrial DNA than for nuclear DNA. Y yes, especially if it's degraded, uh, because while all the copies we we call them copies of DNA uh, yeah. for nuclear DNA might be uh, degraded. There's just so many mitochondrial copies that even though a bunch are degraded, there's still a good proportion that's probably still there that's, that's, that can be useful for analysis. And, and 
it would be useful for which kind of analysis? So I, I specifically worked on being able to genetically profile individuals. So we use the mitochondrial DNA to be able to pin down to the exact individual if we could. Uh, but at least the, the general, what's known as the haplogroup, which is the maternal, uh, everyone who, that shares that maternal haplotype. Does it happen often that they can get mixed, uh, nuclear and mitochondrial DNA? Absolutely. Uh, and that was also part of what I studied was uh, there's this, um, there's a process that happens and it's happening right now as we speak in, uh, in everyone's body, right? Which is a nuclear transfer, uh, transfer of mitochondrial DNA into the nucleus. So the mitochondrial DNA that I spoke about basically will leave the mitochondria and make its way into the nucleus of the cell and then embed itself within the nuclear DNA. So they're known as nuclear mitochondrial insertions. In short, they're known as, uh, I think the acronym is NUMITES. And that was part of what I studied too. For Is it too complicated to explain why mitochondrial DNA, mitochondrial DNA is passed only by your mother? Yes, honestly, I'm not super sure of the process behind the evolutionary process about wha the origins of it. So yeah, I'm probably not the best person for that. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I have to ask you, are you a fan of these shows in TV, the forensic shows? Like CSI <laughs> or all these detective shows? I, I, like, I like the real thing. Like I like crime documentaries. I'm not a fan of <laughs> the shows per se because most of them over-dramatize things and uh, they, it's, bad, it's bad education. Are there any major mistakes they make or they oh yeah it's riddled with problems so i think john oliver had a whole episode on on his you know <laughs> last week tonight i think it's it's on youtube about how well they they usually and i can understand why but they usually sensationalize everything and make it seem like it's really easy and it's black and white so they have dna and they matched it and boom, here's the guy. It's usually not that straightforward. There's a lot of uncertainty that goes into the whole process. So there's always a, um, it's a matter of probability whether it matches Absolutely. or not. So you always have a, a degree of uncertainty. Yes, uh, as in with everything else in science, right? Yeah. Wow, that's that's interesting. Yeah, and, and you don't see that in, <laughs> in any TV shows. No, all. and I can see, I mean, it would make for a pretty boring show, I guess, if it Yeah, we, this may or may not be yeah, the suspect exactly. all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dr. Smart, you you did um, an English major, right? For my bachelor's. For yes. your bachelor's. Mm -hmm. Why 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 did you do an English major? As so, I guess you did a double major, science and English. No, oh, actually, I, I and I don't know if I should be saying this on a podcast to everyone, but I quit biology when I was sixteen. I, I don't think it matters now. What <laughs> you did I when did. you were sixteen? <laughs> <laughs> but I. I just I I I struggled with science early on in my in my career, uh, or uh, in my education, I'd say. Um, I always had a, um, for the lack of a better word, spiritual connection to nature. Uh, so I, I used to just like being out in nature and I was inherently curious about, you know, diversity of animals and plants. But I, uh, I struggled to initially translate that into in science or, you know, bring that enthusiasm into science so I quit biology and I I was into theater uh, so I, I used to do a lot of um, plays so by like Shakespeare and things like that 
and I also read uh, read the works of uh, romantic poets, so you know, like Shelley and Byron, etc. So, what brought you back into biology? So, after I finished my bachelor's, like I said, I always had that spiritual connection with nature, um, and I really. I I thought that I could do a lot of the things that I'd done as an English major uh, by myself independently. I could keep doing that, but uh, I wanted to do something a little more applied, something a little more, something where the results could be seen a little more concretely, just for my personal satisfaction. So I veered back into um, initially ecology uh, to you know to to see, give it another shot, and see if. I could, I could make it this time, and I, I guess it, it was a steep climb, but I, I guess I made it since I have a PhD now. But yeah, wow. Um, we need to do our last short break. Which song would you like to play when we? Uh, uh, this, this track is called Traces. Traces. Okay, we'll be back with more science stories shortly.
wow, it's super relaxing music. I, I, I really like it, honestly. So before the break, we were listening to Traces. Yes. And now we're listening to Ashes, a Requiem. A Requiem, yeah. A Requiem, sorry. And this is, this is music created by our guest, Dr. Smart. What was that beginning in this song? The so this song was actually inspired by, uh, or it was, is, is dedicated to the children in Syria um, that suffered because of the war. So I'd watched a bunch of documentaries on that, and this is so the song that you heard in the beginning was a recording that I took from the internet about uh, Syrian children singing uh, a, a song in. And then it starts with a. And then I, I put in an effect of a bomb that blasts wow. uh, because th- I, I, there are videos literally out there that show you, you know, these poor Syrian children playing uh, and they don't know what's coming and, you know, they bombs dropping them. Wow. Uh, pretty heartbreaking. It's amazing that you make the, the whole, this is only one piano one key keyboard it's one keyboard it's me so alone. how many trucks do you have to uh, uh, there's uh, a typical song can on average i guess has about eight to ten tracks wow and uh, every every sound is created by the keyboard you yeah don't ha- so you it's have a software no i don't i wish i had more like percussion or things like that but like i said i i don't get much time to do this and mm-hmm. i just do it as a way to de-stress so uh, nice. it's easier just to where can people go and listen to this music? They can uh, follow me on SoundCloud. I have a SoundCloud account. Uh, it's called Pal Art. Okay, please go and, and check. There's There are many more tracks, and, and it's all this style, super relaxing music, and it's really nice. Thank you for sharing it. No, thank you. So, since you have an English major, and you originally come from India, I want to ask you about a, a book I read recently which is a little bit embarrassing that I just read it recently, but you know you know how it is. And it's Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Right. And I read it and I really liked the book and I read a little bit about the book. And some people consider it the, the best book that combines the Oriental and Occidental spirituality. Have you read it? I have, but I have to confess that it was a long time ago. Okay, what what do you think about it? I, I personally liked it. I, I did, but I, I think it only... When you talk about Oriental spirituality, it's such a vast and varied... Um, yeah, a huge generalization. Yeah, so it, yeah. b- it catches only a fragment of that. But um, as, as, as a story, as a novel, I, I, I liked it personally. So I'm going to propose you a little bit of self-analysis, as a little exercise, okay? okay? And I didn't warn you about this. No, so you didn't. <laughs> I apologize. There is a... a a scene, I don't know if you call it a scene, in the book, or a, a moment in the book in which Siddhartha is looking for the love of this woman, mm-hmm. and she says, in order to, to conquer my love, I need you to buy nice clothes and have money and give me gifts. And he didn't have anything because mm-hmm. he was a samana, it was people that were super uh, humble and they didn't care about possessions. So she says, I'm gonna put you in contact with this merchant. And he's gonna teach you the way of of money. And when he first meets meets this com- this merchant, he says, "What can you do?" And he says, "The answer of Siddhartha is, I can think, I can wait, I can fast." 
as his three virtues. So I really like I really like that that part of the book, it, it mm. and it makes me think a lot. Can you? What are your three cans? <laughs> My three cans. Um. I definitely cannot fast. <laughs> Let me tell you that I, I get hangry really quickly. But I, wow, oh, that is a, it's trickier than it appears. I guess one of yours is you can create. That's true. Yes, I, you I create guess music. You create knowledge with your science. I guess that's that. that yeah, that is fair. Uh, I can also. Typically, I would say. And I'm 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 not in the habit of pointing out my <laughs> strengths. I'm, I'm, so uh, I'm sorry about this. No, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's good practice because I have to do this for job applications anyway. <laughs> but I think I can persist, and I think that is what actually has got me through, my, you know, my career in science. Honestly, people often think that you need to be really intelligent to be a good scientist. I think you need to be persistent to be a good scientist. It's it's a key personality train. I, ca I can't believe you're saying that because this is something I repeat continuously. If somebody tells me this person has a PhD, I don't think this guy's smart or this woman is smart. Right. I think she or he is persistent. Exactly. Or, uh, and that he has a high tolerance to against failure. Yep. Like persistent and resistant. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. It's it's nice. <laughs> we agree. Yeah, <laughs> we're on the same page there. Yeah. So you could you could persist, you can create, and the third one would be you don't have to if you don't yeah, I know it's um, hard. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about it. It could be it could be something for you to think of afterwards. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And since since you're originally from India, what can you can you say are one of the major differences? So so you the cultural shock must have been pretty strong for you, right? Coming from India to here to the US? Yes, absolutely. Uh, although it's been 12 years now, so mm -hmm. a lot of it is uh, not as sharp in my memory. But I do remember it. I, honestly, I still go through culture shock, uh, even 12 years after being in the U.S. There's some parts that, are, excuse me, there's some parts of the culture that are fundamentally almost opposites, I would say. And it's not good or bad, right? Like, it's what every culture has. Yeah, just has. different, yeah. But uh, I still, uh, yeah, I still struggle with some aspects of, I guess, American culture. Do you mind sharing some or? Um, uh, no, I, so, you know, uh, I, I think that on the, at the broadest level, uh, and this is something that I find really interesting because I, I also like to kind of study cultures, but Asian cultures, okay, let me just restricted to India. I Indian culture is more um, community-driven. It's more communal. So it, you're thinking about the community. So you, you're, you, when you're doing something, right, you, you always factor in other people. And this is good and bad both, right? It, it does, it can be overdone and it comes at the expense of the individual. So in a way, coming to the U.S., that was a welcome change for me because the, the you know the American culture is more individualistic mm -hmm. um, but there's also again the risk of overdoing it right uh, so sometimes I miss the communal some of the communal aspects uh, so things that I feel like should be done in 
I don't know. It's I, I don't think you're saying anything any, anything wrong. I think you're 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 spotting a good difference there, like commu- more communal society versus more individually driven right, society. Right. So like yeah. the kind of bonds you form, the friendships you form, they're not again, uh, they're not better or worse. They're just yeah, yeah. different. Uh, very different. Yeah. Since you are an English major, you didn't have to, and and in India you speak English, right? M- most people do. Yeah. Uh, yes. You didn't have to struggle with the language, which is which helped a lot, I imagine. It actually did. I, so thinking back, I always thought that my, you know, my non-traditional background, so most people I would think who go on to specialize in biology as uh, for the careers have been doing biology uh, since their, you know, college at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do that. I didn't have, I didn't do biology until I had my master's. Like, and I always thought that, w- that was uh, a drawback, but actually I would say that's, been one of the biggest factors that has helped me succeed in science because it's all about communicating your science it it's not enough just to you know do make great discoveries you have to share the discoveries with the local you know the layman but also with your colleagues in science and if you don't publish uh you're going to struggle in science so uh, it, I, I definitely say my my bachelor's in english uh, did help there yes I agree, hundred percent. Um, something that is I found super interesting is that you also speak French. Yes. Why? Can you tell people why you speak French? <laughs> uh, sure. So I come from in India. I grew up in this town called Pondicherry. I don't know. Have you watched Life of Pi? I watched. I did watch it. I loved it. So uh, fun story. So you know where Pi grows up in the little town in India. Yeah. It's called Pondicherry. That's where you're that's from? Yeah, that's uh, where I'm from. And <laughs> here's another fun fact. I actually auditioned for that role. No way. <laughs> yes. For the main role? For Pi's role. When, because <laughs> one of my friends, like I said, I, I was into theater and acting back then. And wow. one of my friends was part of the um, casting crew. And he was like, hey, why don't you give this a try? So I did. How far did you get in the casting? Not very far. Not far. Apparently, they liked my acting, but I was too old for the role. Um, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but the guy is a great actor. The guy. Oh no, no, no! I think he did a great job. Yeah, he's yeah, amazing. No, yeah, uh, he probably did it better than I could. Uh, I, we I never know. <laughs> we never know. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> so, but the, so, if you, if you know Life of Pi, you know that Pondicherry was a French colony, right? So most of India was uh, occupied by the British, colonized by the British. But there's s- small pockets that were f- French colonized, and Pondicherry is one of them. And uh, you know, we're still kind of proud of our French heritage. So all the street names in Pondicherry are in French. Um, nice. So it's Rue de la, you know, whatever, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of the education is also done in French. So I, my medium of instruction for my, so like my math, my biology, whatever topics I studied, I studied in French. So that, that's how I know French. Wow. Y también hablas un poco de español. Sí, un poco, un poquito. Amazing. <laughs> Music, how many languages... Super biologist, this is amazing. Uh, yeah, I don't know about super biologist, but thank you. Thank you so much for for sharing this time in in science stories. Did you have a good time? Oh, I, I it was a lot of fun, and this was my first podcast, so thank you for inviting me. Of course, I I really enjoyed your stories. Thank you so much Same for here. sharing. Thank them. you, thank you for listening to science stories. Wow.